we needed intelligence badly, especially since uh, one of the things he was telling us was that them in this other country were like on a on a verge of a major war, uh, potentially nuclear. Hello, my name is Erica, and you have found your way to my new podcast. It's called Wait, You What? And the idea is that each episode, you're going to hear a story from someone who's going to make you say exactly that. It's the podcast that does a double take on people's surprising stories of struggle, lived experience, self-discovery, and people who have been through something hard usually have some wisdom to share. You're going to walk away from an episode of Wait You What with a new perspective or a piece of advice or both. Today is episode three, and I just want to say thank you so much so far for all of your comments and messages and your reviews. Reviews really help. So leave me one if you enjoy. But today, you're going to hear from someone whose job it was to make people like him. And it wasn't just for his own good, but for the safety of entire countries. Uh, my name is Robin Dreek, and I am currently living in Fredericksburg, Virginia, where I've lived for quite a while. And I'm the retired chief of the FBI Counterintelligence Behavioral Analysis Program. Which actually means that he would use his behavioral analysis skills to catch and recruit spies for the American government. Pretty cool. And I'm also the CEO and head of People Formula, which is a company that strategizes great interpersonal, genuine communications for every part of your life. When I think about you at the FBI, I think about, you know, classic like army roles hiding behind a table, people shooting at you, that kind of thing. <laughs> How accurate is that? Um, not my life at all. No, I work counterintelligence, which means my primary job was recruiting spies. And if I couldn't recruit them, I'd try to keep them from being spies um, and thwarting their efforts to protect national security as well as um, protecting the five eyes. We worked, um, it's called the five eyes because we're all interlaced together. It's uh, United States, Canada, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. I call it the toughest sales job in the world because I have a product, actually not even a product, I have a service I'm offering the service of patriotism to the five eyes <laughs> and the United States to foreign diplomats that are intelligence officers for another country. My primary um, adversary was the Russians. And so my job was to try to sell this product for slash this service to intelligence officers that um, most likely did not want to buy it. As you can imagine, one of the most important things in Robin's toolkit here was his ability to build rapport and make people like him. And it was actually uh, prohibited by law for me to cold call them. So I couldn't even initiate contact. Oh, and Robin absolutely refused to lie to anybody, anyone. Work in the world of counterintelligence at the level I was, it is absolutely 100% anti-manipulation, anti-subterfuge, no deception, complete 100% transparency as much as you can because people are trusting you with their lives. And it's, and it's the same thing, high stakes sales when it comes to finance, investing, It's there, there really isn't any difference. So just to reiterate, Robin had to somehow convince people to be spies to protect America and like save the world without lying to anyone and without being able to contact them. So yeah, that's not a lot of shoot them up kind of stuff. It's more of a, uh, a how do you 
get to know someone without being able to talk to them and see if they have priorities that are aligned with the resources I can offer. One of the ways that Robin would do this is through something called confidential human sources. That is what's known as an individual providing information to an individual that is part of an organization, like I was part of the FBI, that has to maintain their anonymity for their um, professional and personal lives for whatever impact they might have. So kind of like a double agent, right? Someone who works both sides. Robin started telling me about this crazy story that sounded like something straight out of a movie. Right after 9-11, yes, I was working Russians, but we're no longer working Russians. We're no longer working anything but terrorism in the Middle East for a long time, for a good amount of time. And so I I remember I called uh, one of my confidential human sources and I said, hey, um, in the book, we call him Leo. I said, Leo, um, we're no longer working Russians now. I need Middle East. And within two weeks, uh, he did come up with an individual. It was actually a a close relative of a uh, world leader in the Middle East. Robin calls this close relative Anan. This was a big deal because this was the part of the world that we're now going to war with in Afghanistan and, you know, in Iraq. and, And it was we needed intelligence badly. So Robin had a big task on his hands. Meet Anan, get him on their side, build a rapport with Anan and get intelligence from him. And there was a lot on the line especially since uh, one of the things he was telling us was that them in this other country were like on a on the verge of a major war, uh, potentially nuclear. How did he do it? Well, he started really simple. One of the ways I love to build um, a connection is shared interests, commonalities, understanding someone's context. One of my favorite questions is traditions. You know, tell me about a fam- favorite family tradition you had growing up. And he told me about this Kashmiri tea um, that he used to get at a tea house. It was a pink chai tea and it's pink from pistachio that they put in it uh, in this part of the world in the Middle East. And so at the next meeting, I wanted to have Kashmiri tea for uh, my friends because I thought that was a great way to demonstrate I was listening, pay attention. And it was interesting because I go all over Manhattan looking for Kashmiri tea. And I finally found it in a small little store in the middle of nowhere. I bought a couple cartons of it. And I, when I poured it out, it was lime green and not pink, like he said. So I did what any great guy does. I went and got a little red food dye. And I noticed if I put a couple drops in, I could actually turn it pink. And we're, we're in our white shirts and our suits, our ties. And we're in a hotel room waiting to meet a non, you know, for like literally the second meeting to try to see if we can develop a relationship and trust to try to save the world kind of stuff. And so my friend is in the in the bathroom with a with a camp stove trying to heat up the tea in a, in a camp stove. You know, it's all tall and teetering. All of a sudden I hear a crash and a boom. And uh, I go in there and the red food dye had gone all over the white towel. It looked like we slaughtered an animal in there. Um, and it's all over a shirt. And I said, dude, you got to clean this up because I got to go down and get them right now. And so I go down to get them and uh, in the lobby. And I, all I said was, I said, we tried to do something very special for you. Um, I don't know if it turned out that well. And we get upstairs and I do this little knock on the door. And, and uh, Jesse comes to the door with a nice tea and, and covered in all this. But we had cashmere tea for him. And he said, you did all this just for me? I said, yeah, well, we tried. Um, and there you go, off and running. And we are still very, very good friends today. I mean, I tar- retired years ago, and that was back in October of 2001. And we still exchange gift baskets every year at, ho- at the holidays. <laughs> I know it seems like a little thing to make someone a tea that's sentimental to them, but it's a small gesture like this that underpins one of Robin's main theories on rapport building. How do I make it about you? It's not about how you make people feel about yourself. It's how you make them feel about themselves. And how do you make someone feel like a million bucks? He reckons it comes down to four simple things. If you include one of these four things in everything you say, or in a Zoom call, or in an email, or a text, the entire shift 
goes from yourself to the other person. One, seek their thoughts and opinions instead of sharing yours. Two, talk in terms of their priorities, their needs, wants, dreams, and aspirations, personal, professional, long-term, short-term, instead of yours. Three, this is beautifully critical. Validate them without judging them. Seek and understand them. Have that non-judgmental curiosity about the human being you're interacting with without judging. And three, you empower them with choices because all human beings were genetically and biologically hardwired to act in our own best interests in terms of safety, security, and prosperity and a sense of control. And if I offer that with full transparency, openness, uh, as well as demonstrating vulnerability where I'm sharing where I'm sharing what I'm good at and I'm sharing exactly what I'm bad at, that gives you situational awareness to make any decision you want for an interaction. So with that in mind, the million dollar question, how do you make someone like you? It's probably not the answer you expected. You can't make anyone do anything because if I want to make you do something, it's about me. That's, you know, you can't convince anyone to like you as opposed to how can I inspire someone to want to like me? Because inspiration has to come from within you. How often did you feel liked by people you were recruiting um, as spies? I actually felt um, really well liked. I went, you know, because it was funny. What was interesting to me when I was younger in my career, it always kind of befuddled me how my, my confidential human sources I was working with, and those are the individuals giving me information about the spies. They liked me a lot. Because what was I doing? It's the same thing in law enforcement. You don't judge or when you actually are interacting with someone that really, really matters a lot in your life or you're trying really hard. And when you're trying really hard with someone, what are you doing? You're seeking their thoughts and opinions. You're talking in terms of what's important to them. You're not judging them in any way because you know if you judge them, and we do this all the time. What happens when you question someone or, or, or you don't think they're right and you challenge their thoughts and opinions? Shields go up. They don't like you. So you know, I wasn't doing all these things. So I was amazed all the time that these people liked me. And how come I, when I went back to the office, people on my squad thought I was an idiot? Well, because the people on a squad I took for granted. And the people when I was interacting with, I wasn't. Robin reckons that likability, yeah, it's good. But trustworthiness, that's what you should aim for. Likeability is good if you can have it on top. Trust is the most paramount thing of everything in life, whether you're trying to recruit a spy, trying to sell something, trying to create a partnership with anyone for any purpose, home, personal, pleasure, business, whatever. You got to be careful because likability can be, it, it really is pretty subjective. So likability is generally where you have uh, commonality of morals, ethics, interests, background, priorities, all these things that make someone else interesting to us, makes them very likable because we like to hang around them. I can like you, but not trust you in a lot of different lanes, you know, to perform in different areas. And encounter to that also, I could actually predict and trust you to perform a lot of different things, but not really like you a whole lot. Um, if you have two together, that's fantastic, but you got to be careful not to let one bleed into the other if they're incongruent with each other. After learning how to make people like him and trust him in the world of catching and recruiting spies, Robin actually released a book on how to build rapport with people. It's called It's Not All About Me, The Top 10 Techniques for Building Quick Rapport. I'll put it in the show notes so you can check it out. In it, he talks about some ways that you can make yourself more likable and more trustworthy. He talks about body language, tilt your head down and to the side, conversation tactics like asking questions, speaking slower. But there's one technique that was super interesting. In the book, he calls it 
establishing artificial time constraints. But when I asked him about it, he said he'd prefer not to call it that anymore. So I wrote that book in 2010. It was published in 2011. And life's a progression and not a destination. And so even back then, it was very altruistic in my, all my intent about making it about others. But even some of my language, I cringe at today. So I'm actually going to modify that. It's not artificial time constraints. It's just establishing a time constraint. So what you're doing is you're allowing the other person control. And control in the sense of they know when the end is coming and you're empowering them with choice about if that's good with them or not. So, um, you know, say you're sitting at a bar instead of just walking up to someone and say, hey, can I buy you a drink? You know, it's open ended. You have no idea when the end's coming as opposed to saying, hey, I'm so sorry to bother you. I meet my friends outside in like 30 seconds. May I ask you a quick question? 30 seconds, I'm out. You can, uh, they can be implied whether you're standing on a checkout line, you're waiting outside a restroom for someone to come out. Um, whether, and I did this in the world of recruiting as well, you know, so say, instead of walking up to someone saying, hey, would you like to cooperate with the United States government? <laughs> as opposed to, hey, how about this? If it's okay with you, there's a choice. Why don't we try to get together for maybe two cups of coffee over the next month? I would love to share with you uh, my priorities and share what resources I have. And more importantly, I want to learn about what your priorities and re uh, that are important to you to see if we have a cooperation. If at the end of two cups of coffee, we don't, no harm, no foul. We know each other a little bit better and we go our separate ways. That's a time constraint. He says this makes people more open to conversations, more comfortable in conversations. Another method Robin talks about is called ego suspension. That is get over yourself and learn how to make it about them. And everything is everything we talk about today is all about ego suspension. And the easiest way to practice that, continually try to be non-judgmentally curious about other people. That is the best thing I can offer. The other thing I love is an assistance theme because human beings, again, we're genetically and biologically coded to render assistance to others because we fear if we ever need it in kind, we won't be there unless we've you know paid it forward. The key to this, Robin says, is keeping the request or offer easy and non-threatening. You're standing on a checkout line. One of the things I always used to do and, and still do now, if you're allowed to get close enough, six feet, you know, offer hand sanitizer. That That's offering something with 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 no expectation of reciprocity, but in general, someone's going to want to do something in reciprocity with that, like say thank you, offer a conversation, uh, make a comment about something. So it's, it's offering something in advance with no expectation of reciprocity, but understanding that there's probably going to be some reciprocation in there. So assistance themes um, go a long way. Again, we genetically, we do respond to them. A really important thing to keep in mind, though, throughout all these methods and strategies, be realistic. We've talked around it a bunch of times. The, the, the 10th one is managing expectations. And managing expectations to me is understanding that just because you're doing all you possibly can to make it about the other person does not mean that you can control that they like you or not or trust you or not. It's entirely up to them. So manage your own expectations because everyone's different and the effect you're going to have on them is going to be completely different each time. Why do these things work on people? What part of us do they appeal to when you're doing things like this? Our genetics and biology. So we have four, um, boy, if I can remember all the uh, all of them. So we have four neuroreceptors uh, in the brain. These are dopamine, endorphins, serotonin, and oxytocin. So two of them are focused on short-term gains and uh, goal achievement. This is dopamine and endorphins. But serotonin and oxytocin, those are the long-term relationship drugs. Those are the ones uh, that reward when we're cooperating with people. And so when we're demonstrating cooperation, when we're making it about the other person, 
literally the person's brain is rewarding them for engaging with us. And so when we're demonstrating this collaborative kind of stuff, when we're inspiring trust, when we're showing that we are trustworthy others, and we're showing that we are good for survival for you, their brain is rewarding them for this because our ancient tribal brain says, if you're not part of the tribe, the likelihood of you surviving and being able to pass on your genetic coding to others is slim to none. So our brain literally rewards us for collaborative and cooperation and relationship building on behaviors. And so if you, be, if you are the one that is doing that for others, their brain is literally saying, I like this person. And we, and here's an example where we've all experienced it. We've all had or have someone in our lives and we, you might even be that person. And you're trying to figure out why do people like talking to me to so much? I can guarantee why. Because you are actually seeking their thoughts and opinions and not judging them. You are listening, 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 and validating, validating, validating about the things that they want to talk about. How do you catch a spy? You don't. It's, it's, it's a funny answer. Uh, it, so you actually don't because you can't recruit. You can't convince anyone of anything. What you do is you think in terms of how do I inspire them to want to. Just And so I, I can always ask the return rhetorical question. So how do you sell a high-end product to someone? You don't. You actually, all you're doing is trying to discover if any of these individuals that I'm supposed to offer my services to has priorities that align with the resources I have. So my job was to figure out if any of these intelligence officers had priorities that they didn't want their children growing up under Putin's regime, if they had elder care issues for their parents, they wanted better health care, if they wanted education and opportunities, if they had in their mind that they didn't want their families to grow up where they're growing up, and they wanted a life somewhere in the West in one of the five eyes, you know, my job is to figure out which one of them's deep down seated inside because they can't vocalize anything like that. I, my job is to figure out who might have that as a priority. And if I could figure out who might have that as a priority, I have to let them know I'm someone you can trust because I have resources in terms of that priority. So that's all you do. You're, you're trying to find a client that might want your services. Great answer. <laughs> Is that easy? That is easy. <laughs> I, I've got to ask these ones. How much top secret stuff do you know? Uh, probably a fair deal. <laughs> um, yeah, probably a good deal. Just be, And it, it's top secret from um, methods and techniques, not really, because methods, I just shared all the methods and techniques. It's all about selling, you know, selling trust. Um, so that's not any great secret. The individuals I worked with, absolutely. Um, there's some great, great human beings um, that did a lot of great things um, that the world will never really know. Uh, they did a lot of things to protect us all. Could these skills that you've just talked to us about be used for evil and not good? Guaranteed. Guaranteed. I get. I can. I have gotten PIN numbers, dates of birth, social security numbers without anyone even knowing it. Guaranteed. Human beings have an incessant need to correct others. If you use intentional misstatements, it's easy. What's an intentional misstatement? People have a need to correct others all the time. So say something, watch them correct them. You know, like say, I'm pretty good at this. You must be born in what, June? No, July, the 5th, no, the 16th. I know you just got your date of birth. I didn't ask one question. You just corrected me. So what does getting a PIN number look like? Your PIN number, one, two, three, four, five? Well, I don't want to give away everything because people <laughs> use it. But um, so I, so there's a number of things you can do. It's called reveal bandwagon. So you put social pressure on them. If you have a group of people that are automatically going around the wheel saying, hey, yeah, I know I just got compromised. I've been using my date of birth for my PIN number. Yeah, my kid uses her uh, her stuffed animal's name, Wilbur, Wilbur, one, two, three. I mean, so then, then you just look at the other person. You know, you got that. So what you've done is you formed a, a circle of trust and then you put peer pressure on someone. That's one way. Wow. Have you done anything bad with these skills apart from, as you mentioned, 
eliciting information? Never. Now, when I first wrote that book, uh, it's not all about me. I taught these skills at, you know, at our, at our training academy. And yeah, uh, you, you, we use, you know, we talk to real people to try to practice how to make it about them. And to me, that was playing with people. And so for that, you know, we didn't use any information negatively. We didn't actually gather negative information about people. You know, we just practice the skills of building rapport and building trust. But at the same time, though, it wasn't transparent um, to the individual they were talking to um, back then. And so I didn't like it and I won't do it. I refuse. You know, when people say, hey, hey, let's go, you know, go practice your mad skills. Let, let's, sh- let's show someone how you can get a date of birth from a waitress or something. I go, nope, we'll never do it. I do not play with people. It is wrong. <laughs> I have to say, the first time I ever heard about using interpersonal techniques and tricks like this in conversations was from a book called The Game. Do you remember it? You might, because it was pretty big. It was released in 2005 by a professional pickup artist called Neil Strauss and was essentially a guide on how to get any woman you want, like the hottest ones. All the boys I knew at the time couldn't stop talking about it. And there were some shady tactics in there, looking back, like negging, which is putting someone down to make them like you. I asked Robin what he thought about people who use these kind of techniques for this purpose. I know, Neil Strauss. Actually, he trained my team. I know Neil. <laughs> he actually, he, so we used to, so one of the things my team did, uh, we, we d- did a lot of reading every year um, and we had books that we handed out. And we actually, you know, we studied the, we studied the game. Um, and so matter of fact, it's where time constraints came from was the game. Cause that's the one thing I grabbed from that, that I thought was an effective psychological, um, technique to actually lower shields. And so the interesting thing about books like pickup artists, and, and here's where it'll start falling apart. You know, if you're doing, if you're utilizing these skills to try to pick people up, where's the focus? Is it on you or is it on them? It's on yourself. It will fail at some point. So, so what happens is when you're looking in the world of the pickup artists or you're looking for to try to gain, have people gain interest in yourself, it becomes very transactional. It becomes very in the moment and doesn't go very deep and doesn't go very far. So yes, it's very effective in a short transactional interaction. You're not going to form long-term trust. You're not going to form a long-term relationship based on that. So I, I always say, um, I pick up where those leave off, you know, cause I'm all about going for, I'm never about transactional. I'm always about relationships, partnerships, trust. How does your advice change for people who aren't white men? Um, for example, if you're a tall black man or an attractive woman, the interaction would probably change due to the perception and bias from the other person being approached. What do you think about this? How people view you is, is part of the process of understanding how to communicate with them. And now if you want to communicate, you're going to have to not judge how they see the world through their optic and lens. So if your goal and objective is to keep shields down so you can have information go back and forth, I can just guarantee what will happen if you judge them for how they're seeing you. Shields will go up and you won't communicate because you're not going to change a first impression of, of a bias that they have, positive or negative. You know, everyone has a confirmation bias based on how they grew up, their ethnicity, their generation, their, their orientation, their social status, economic, all these things play into how their viewpoint of the world is. All my job is to figure out what that is so I can communicate effectively with you uh, if that's what my job is to do or if that's what I want to do. Because what happens is their context of how they see the world is what? It's one of their priorities. 
And so you have to understand it if you want to communicate with it. Now, granted, you don't have to. It now comes down to your choice. You know, if you see someone's viewpoint of how they view you as unhealthy because it's going to create an unhealthy relationship because of how they perceive you, how they interact with you, um, then just don't engage. What I love about this entire thing, because all what we've talked about is so focused on understanding the other human being, it now empowers you a choice about making good, healthy, strong decisions for yourself. I mean, it's interesting because it seems like a lot of the things that you talk about doing, they seem quite obvious when you when you say them, but most people don't do them. The elusive obvious. Well, because we get emotionally hijacked in the moment. Because so you have the long-term brain, you know, neuroreceptors that are going for the long-term relationships, serotonin and oxytocin. And then you have the short-term ones. Those are the ones that are giving you the quick hits. You know, so someone giving you a quick like on Facebook, Instagram, or somewhere else, that's a quick little, that's a little teeny little dopamine hit. And it makes us feel good in a second. So we kind of keep going and gravitating towards these quick little hits rather than understanding that getting the big ones, the oxytocin hits, what it actually will sustain us and, and sustain relationships. It takes a little bit more time and relationship to build those up. So we get addicted to these quick hits. I always say it's sex, drugs, rock and roll, chocolate, alcohol, and non-judgmental quick validation gives us these quick hits. It's, it's the, well, that's the addiction in the brain. You know, that's how people get addicted. That's why people get addicted to their cell phones, get addicted to social media, because it's literally given your brain chemistry the same hit that all these other um, al- alcohol and drugs do. It's exactly the same thing that's going on in the brain. Do you ever feel lonely in an interaction, though, if it's all about them and you're getting them to talk about themselves and it's two hours? Oh, I love it. Oh, it's, it's fascinating. It, it gets exhausting. You know, so what happens, so it's interesting. If you have an anecdote or story, what you're actually doing is you're testing me and the world around you for acceptance. Harvard University did a study back in the spring of 2012. And what they found is that 40% of our day, we're sharing our thoughts and opinions with others because we're testing the world around us for acceptance. When people are ex, you know, testing, their brain is rewarding them for testing and you accept me, non-judgmental validation, head tilt, nod, smile. But what happens is my brain also is saying, go, 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 go. Um, and so then it becomes deflating emotionally for us when someone is hogging all the dopamine. But if you can rewire your thinking to the fact that you want to be a resource for their success, and if one of their feelings of success is that they have to vent, they have to be a sounding board, and they feel better for having met you, if that's one of your goals, well, now you're long-term relationship drugs start flowing. Um, so that's what great leaders do. So, but yeah, it can be exhausting. So you just have, so you can control it by just not validating someone. You don't have to be mean or anything. Just, just sit there blankly stare at them as they're just monologuing at you. They'll stop. (laughs) Wait, you what is written, recorded, produced by me, Eric Mallett. And you can find me on Instagram if you have any thoughts on any episodes, Erica underscore Mallet, double L, double T. Or even if you know someone who you think could be a good guest on Where You What. Next episode, you're going to hear from someone whose brain injury caused her to lose her whole sense of self and who she thought she was. Her entire personality changed in a matter of hours. So how do you navigate the same world as a new person? Well, you'll find out on the next episode of Wait You What. Okay, bye.